Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I am beyond excited about the opportunity today to share with you. Our guest is Ivan Sachs, who is an entrepreneur, an investor, a wealth manager, uh, someone who has been a community builder, uh, living in Dallas, Texas, being uh, building the, the Jewish community there, and has potentially one of the most harrowing stories you could imagine, having survived cancer three times. So I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't talk a lot in this interview, uh, probably to your benefit, um, but it was so amazing to hear how someone who is so focused on appreciation and Jewish values and bringing God into their life deals with challenges, uh, deals with how he, how God plays into business, plays into the work that he does, the, the returns that he has for his clients for himself. And there's just, there's so much to say here. So uh, with no further ado, I'm thrilled to have on Ivan Sachs. Well, in 1995, when I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I was at, uh, I knew I was going to reinvent myself for who knows what time, the umpteenth time. Ivan took this young fisher over here. He drove me around for a couple of days and he took me to his investment company and I met his boss, who was a big mentor. Ivan was at the forefront of the uh, uh, audio books. He had a store, took me that, gave me a bunch of information that I should... Uh, should listen to and he really kind of took me under his uh and his uh palm of his hand let's say and was a it was really at a critical time of my life Alvin gave me straight talk and lots of chizok and it's really wonderful to see you today good to see you as well you know it's interesting when you make an introduction and you, and you mention things that i totally forgot about it makes me remember that i've been i probably lived a few lives you know like the audio books which were on tape you think that we don't have anything like tapes nowadays. Yeah, um, yeah that is a lot harder. Ivan, can you, can you just give us a little bit of your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, you mentioned audiobooks. How did you get started? How did you wind up in Texas with your, uh, with your beautiful non-Texan ac accent? Give us a little bit of the, uh, the background, please. Okay, so I, I came to the United States 40 years ago, pretty much, 1980, and uh, I moved to Dallas, Texas, because the other West Coast and the East Coast looked too developed. And I just wanted to be in a place where I could grow up with the place. So Texas appealed to me at that time. And uh, the Jewish community wasn't that um, advanced at that stage either. So it was just in the building stages, getting itself started. And so I was able to actually grow not only just with the city and getting to know people in the city, but also from a Jewish point of view, understanding that my background from Johannesburg, South Africa, was mostly in Kimberley, which is a real small little town, really, but it was a diamond city and Johannesburg being the golden city. And I went to a very fine school by the name of Christian Brothers College to boarding school <laughs> at the age of 12. So at the age of 12, I got my Yiddishkeit by learning with a, a reverend or a wonderful man, Reverend Matzner, learning my Bar on cassette tape. In terms of actual education, in terms of Judaism and that, I had a, my heart, my neshama has been connected to Yiddishkeit all the time. 
But in South Africa, we had a connection to Judaism. We just loved being Jewish, and we were mostly connected by two aspects, one being uh, Israel, which was uh, Zionism, and then we also had Holocaust. So those were the driving forces. I'm not necessarily saying in the Jewish schools, although, no, I'd say right throughout South Africa, those were the two primary things that were driving the country. Most of the shuls we had uh, were orthodox in a way. Uh, yeah, all of them were orthodox, but we lived ourselves. Uh, we drove to shul, we did all that kind of stuff. So we were conservatox, the actual attendees. The, the rabbis were the genuine article. And we were the articles trying to become genuine. But we didn't know what we were doing most of the time. It was a, it was a very, um, it was a, a beautiful Jewish community. I would say that's probably one of the best in the world in terms of. No doubt about it, yeah. You know, just warm and helpful and no, uh, there was absolutely, what, what I find amazing, there was no one looking down at someone that was religious or someone that was religious looking down at someone that wasn't. They just accepted people. It was really beautiful. There was no distinction between shuls because we never had anything but the orthodox shuls. Uh, we didn't have conservative. And so all you'd have is you'd have different congregations all over. But so there was very little friction. Uh, so very it was also an overriding principle. It was a net contributor principle. Contributor yeah, yeah. you consume, whether it's time, money, effort, right? That was a principle that we lived by, right? Yeah. I mean, if a person was Jewish, you, you wanted to help them. You know, it was something that, I don't know. It was, it was just like, you just respected it. If a person wore kippah, did something... Oh, wow, okay. You, you didn't have a preconceived idea in any one way or the other about that particular person. You just accepted them in a very warm way. And I, I really am, it was a real treasure living in South Africa from a Jewish point of view. And again, understanding that I was very secular. I had no, uh, I, uh, I couldn't even read Hebrew. I learned it on a tape. Um, so, uh, and I've become very involved, having moved to the United States, I got involved with a rabbi, Rabbi Rodin, uh, here in Dallas, who really started out uh, from nothing. And I joined him and started the shul over here, and then also started off the shiva. I'm going I'm I'm to stop you there, because that's a whole conversation. Talk more about the entrepreneurial, the, sort of the, the business side, because your whole Judaism entrepreneurial, your Social entrepreneurial is a phenomenal yeah. conversation in itself, you know? Okay, sure. So when I came to the United States, I, I liked numbers and I liked people. So I decided, well, liking numbers, liking people, become a stockbroker. So I went and I knocked on 17 different doors and uh, no one gave me the job except the 17th guy, which was a guy, Don Hodges, who Mike uh, remembers having met. And he hired me. Uh, everyone else liked my accent. I don't think they really understood what I was saying. They liked the accent, but they don't understand the words. And so uh, he hired me, and I'm to this day very indebted to him. He was just a wonderful mentor. He's since passed away. And uh, I, I started out with him in his firm. Uh, years, I had to wait six months before they could hire me because I didn't have a green card or anything. When I came here, I just came as... A visitor, and then I got sponsored by a very wonderful family, uh, the Sheps family, as an accountant. And uh, from there, I became a, a stockbroker, working at uh, Rasha Pierce Refners. I was a very, very hungry individual in terms of eager to perform. 
they paid me a salary, I don't know, maybe $2,000 a month, and I was so excited. And uh, the, the guys who were with me as well, the American guys that were with me, just couldn't understand that I was so appreciative, you know, for everything that I had, which goes to today's society, where everyone's got an expectation that they get everything for free. And I was so, so appreciative. I became the number one producing broker in the company's 75 year history. And the one guy says to me when they, when they interviewed me for why I did so well, so I said, I don't know, I'm just very excited. You know, I'm so appreciative to be here. So the one guy stands up and says, oh, no, 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 so the Jews. The Jews uh, are the people that are supporting your business and all that kind of thing. That's why you guys do well. Truth of the matter is that I didn't have that many Jewish clients at the time. But you could just see uh, when you do produce results, no matter where you are in the world, you are identified as being Jewish. I feel I like we can really... pull that out. I feel like we could pull that experience and just, you know, dump it in 2020 and no one would notice any difference. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's such an amazing idea. And I just, I want to reiterate in case anyone was, was not clear that you attribute your success to A, the fact that you were genuinely appreciative of, of where you were and of the opportunity. And I think that finding that for people is such a crucial thing. Like, do you like where you are? Are you happy where you are? And if the answer is yes, you will naturally produce. And if not, so then you could be in potentially the most you know, environment that could be the most lucrative in the world, but if you hate it, it's not right for you. There's also another thing about South Africans. You know, I always joke that people are never neutral to a South African. They either love us or they hate us. But there's one thing about South Africans. When we came to the rest of the world, we're thankful they gave us an opportunity, without a doubt. That's the Hakaratog. But in addition, we knew what we left behind. And there was no ways we were going to sit around and wait for someone else to potentially give us an opportunity to regain what we left behind. We came because we didn't want to take a down standard in lifestyle and in community and that we came because we want to at least get back what we left behind and improve on it. Isn't that true, Art? Like we came yeah. with expectations well, uh, we had to push for it. Yeah, we're driven. Oh, hungry. Yeah, we're hungry, but I think the idea it goes to today's world. I was so appreciative, literally. So I told you in a short thing that I had to wait six months before I've been hired. So if I had to wait for six months, what do I do? And I literally went, I worked for a telephone company. I think I sold some telephone. And then I, I just cut people's lawns. And I was happy as anything, cutting people's lawns. I mean, one guy had a lawn that I still remember to this day. was so high, got $25 or something like that. If it was that, I don't know, maybe it was even less. But I was just so happy. Uh, just being here and very appreciative for the opportunity, you know, getting your, uh, um, I, I can't begin to tell you, I mean, I've, I've, the people that sponsored me, I still thank them to this day. I remember writing an extensively long letter of thanks, which is one of the best exercises I've ever done, is to take three people or four people in your life that have done something of value to you and really put pen to paper and, and express the, the, uh, the deep level of appreciation that you have for, their, their kindness and helpfulness during the time. And not only was it extremely valuable to me for having written it out, because sometimes you forget, but to the person receiving it, uh, they really treasured it. And I still remember the people that I wrote those letters to. I remember I, someone had suggested it and I just decided to do it. There was also something else that I remember about you from the days when we lived in Dallas is something that I really believe is something that I'm proud to say is one of my uh, quests is 
you always cherished older people, being around wisdom, being around people 20, 30 years older than you, and then you'd invite them around to your house and you'd give them a whiskey or whatever it was and say, impart wisdom. And I remember you had one guy, you said to me, this gentleman in front of me, he's been a gazillionaire. He's lost a gazillion. He's been a gazillionaire. So I looked at him and I said, well, what are you right now? He says, on the upswing. And I said, can you, can you share some wisdom for Ivan and I? He says, what's wrong with you guys? You all ask me the same question. And I remember what he said to me. I've, this is a long time, 25 years ago. He said, a piece of garbage is a piece of garbage. You can never pour perfume on a piece of garbage because it'll still stink. Cut yeah. your losses, my friend. <laughs> That's oh, I remember that guy. Was, was, just as a matter of interest, not in terms of the actual person, but was that the guy that was from Galveston, Texas? That's the guy. Yeah. This guy was a wild, wild character. Uh, like Zorba the Greek. Uh, just full of life. And I, I remember that exact story. Okay, good. Yeah. That's a good memory. And if it's only I would have remembered that lesson. Well, I always remembered if only I would have on that lesson because yeah, we yeah. all have a habit of trying to pour perfume on smelling garbage right? yeah I, I think i the way i remember it mike was just the idea that he says you can't um i don't want to be crude but he just said i think at the time because he's just that kind of guy he just said you can't polish a turd in other words what you were saying was is that like unless you've had hard life experience you really can't really uh, give uh, over experience and and uh, and wisdom yeah right. yeah that that's very much it yeah so talk about other than your stockbroking because i know stockbroking was part of it but you always had other things going you know you always yeah so i it's a it's, well it's an interesting journey if you really want to know a, a person the last place that you want to look for knowing a person is to look at a person's resume a resume is just generally polished up just to show how good you are or why you believe people should like you and everything else like that. And really, if I were to write an honest resume, I would say that I've, like you said earlier on, Mike, um, you know, done many, many things. I mean, I uh, have passed, I, I remember until the age of 42, I'm now 63. I was moving from one job to another job to another job. Now, every time that I did a job, I did well in it. And then I decided, no, that's not it. And I moved on. And one of the most valuable lessons one can have is to have a look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, what's going on? When you have to reboot yourself every single time to start off another business, uh, start off a career, and believe you me, I'm, I'm a pre, pretty decent salesperson, so I could rationalize as to why I was moving from one thing to the other. Um, and so I would do that. But then I'm a little bit of a slow learner. You remember I was educated at Christian Brothers College in Kimberley. It took me until the age of 42. And I, I said to myself, what's going on here? I'm rebooting myself. I've got to find out what's going on with Ivan Sachs. And so I called my brother-in-law in Austin. And I said, tell me something. Do you have someone that's a psychiatrist? I really want to get to the bottom of why things are circulating. I'm sharing this information because I believe it's more valuable than most, only because a lot of people just don't know how to identify and to recognize the things that are holding them back or whatever. So I went and I met with a psychiatrist for the first time. By the way, um, psychiatry 
psychologists and all that kind of stuff in South Africa, it's passing. You don't ever talk about that kind of stuff. You know, you're strong, you're tough, you don't cry and everything else. Like that. Psychiatrists, psychologists, you have to be a nut. <laughs> so when I say it now, you know that I've actually graduated a little bit further than when I came. So I didn't know, I'm just a psychiatrist, I don't know, whatever. So he gave me a battery of tests. But I can tell you now what's amazing is that I learned so much. I would classify this individual as my, one of my closest friends ever, the psychiatrist. I mean, a friend like this, I, he calls me every single week. How are you doing whatever? And it just so happens, as life works out, his last name is certainly not Jewish at all. And I paint rocks, and I know painting rocks is uh, something that people won't understand what I mean by painting rocks. But if you hold on one second, one second, I've got. Like, let's say I paint rocks like that, you know. Um, uh, can you see that? Yeah. So I paint rocks. And so when I painted rocks, I would give them out to people. By the way, this has been one of the more interesting journeys of my life, painting rocks. But I would paint rocks for, I would paint rocks every single day. I don't know, for four years or something like that. I started doing that when I had my cancer. But besides that, the rocks are an amazing, amazing way of communicating. People that are given rocks they still have their rocks displayed in their houses or whatever. And it's always just a positive message. Why I bring it up though, is that he said, you know, my, my, wife, my mother is not well. And uh, I said, I'll make a rock for her. I said, that would be so nice. He said, I don't know why. She's just very connected to Judaism in some way. I said, oh, okay, fine. So I said, oh, okay, Hashem loves you or whatever. Yeah, I put that on a rock. And I found out later that she was, a, what would you call it, a cryptic Jew or crypto Jew or uh, some people say it's derogatory to say a Marana or whatever. But they came from Spain. And he himself is fully Jewish. Wow. So they kept uh, the lineage down the mothers, eh? Huh? All, all the women in his life have, uh, have been Jewish consistently. Wow. I just, I, but, I, no, but I mean, he, his father was Catholic. You know, his father is totally Catholic. The name is absolutely a Hispanic name, you know, like Gonzalez or something like that. But the most wonderful human being like you could ever believe. I, and I, I share I, a lot of Judaism with him. I, I wanted to just, it, it, just to interrupt for one second, that something that stuck yeah. out for me that was so phenomenal and fascinating, mostly because I'm in, you know, I'm in the coaching space, the rabbi space, and there's a lot of these clinical kind of crossovers. And what's so beautiful is you look at this experience as something that was so transformative from your life, but behind all of the technical information that I'm sure he was able to share with you, the person kind of shone through and, and, I think behind every like great technician, if you don't have that personal relationship, you're leaving so much of it kind of on the table. And that's just such a fascinating piece just that, that you mentioned about how impactful that relationship was. Yeah, no, it's been a wonderful, but the interesting thing is to have recognized and identified a problem that you don't see as a problem, I'm just moving on to the next thing, that's all. I'm just moving on to the next thing. And I rationalized, I was, you know, it was a nice experience, but I'm moving on. And then I found out, um, let's say the diagnosis, let's say what people mostly say to these days, what ADD, whatever the case is. What, and as I said, I was generally very successful at every place that I went. But why are you moving the whole time? And if you can get, if you can stop, and I'm, so many people go through this, I've met so many people that I've tried to help along the way, 
just to understand, hey, wait, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, I did that as well. It's been a tremendous uh, benefit for myself, obviously, and for others as well. Just oh, to, I, uh, I want to suggest something, because that suffices to say that Ivan is a very good investment manager. He was, he is. He's also a great entrepreneur on a startup basis because he gets passionate about things because it can be hard to push him in that direction to tell us more. It's too humble in that respect. So let's, let's talk about his motivation from a community basis. He was very um, modest when he said that Dallas had a, not much of a Jewish community, pretty much had nothing. It was almost nothing, at least in the Orthodox, modern Orthodox area. I haven't met Rabbi Rodin. Now let's talk about Yeah, you can't be as modest. What have you done to build Dallas and why? Well, I think the driving uh, to be Jewish, I'm so proud of it. And uh, the army in South Africa uh, helped me to be, I mean, going to boarding school at Christian Brothers College made me recognize that I was Jewish because everyone reminded me, the bullies and all of that when I first arrived at the age of 12. And then when we were in the army, literally we took on the whole, they put all the Jews into one uh, camp in, in Heidelberg. And and they and they you know there was there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism and they literally fought uh, the whole camp together and we said we are prepared to take you all on. I remember still there was a guy Anthony Levine, and um, there was something just incredibly. Uh, I, I love being Jewish. I mean I I can't even begin to tell you how Judaism has helped me throughout all the journeys and difficulties that I've been through. Um, and then when I got here, I. I, want, I just wanted to get involved. So I helped start the shul, Congregation Ohev Shalom. I was the president there for, I think, I don't know, 20 years or something. Uh, on and off, um, I'm a master delegator. I love to delegate. So it's really not a great accomplishment that I was a president for 20 years. I just gave away the work for 20 years. Um, but let me just then, give uh, context. That shul was the catalyst for building Dallas which Ivan's going to eventually talk about as we drag it out from him. He'll talk about Dallas's today. But I remember you going to Tom Thumb, which was the supermarket, and convincing the manager to open up a kosher deli in the kosher section. Yeah. It was yeah. the most phenomenal thing. He actually pulled it off. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you should say that. There is so much in your life, Mark, I'm sure, and in yours as well, Rabbi, that it's so good to reflect back with people that you haven't spoken to in years because you forget what you've done. I don't even remember that. But anyway, I may have done it or may not have done it. But if I had to do it, I would have done it if that, if that was my job. But um, getting the show started off in Dallas was, you must understand that everyone came from different backgrounds. Rabbi Rodin is just the most beautiful human being I know. And the longer I get to know him, the more I respect him. Um, he's not, uh, you know, he's not, he's not, uh, one of these charming, he's a very pleasant and beautiful human being, but he's not like an eloquent speaker, although I think he speaks well. He's not like charismatic, that kind of thing, but quiet, humble. And I just loved him from day one when I met him. And whatever he wanted, I was prepared to do. So that's why I started off with the shul and, and got very, very involved with that. And then the shul itself, uh, the one thing that uh, the Chobetz Chaim, Yeshiva Chobetz Chaim, 
had never really accomplished getting a shul to start off a yeshiva. And Rabbi Rohn really wanted that. And we had two rabbis come into town, Rabbi Kaufman and Rabbi Pach. They came in, they just graduated, they were looking at other places, and they decided to do a yeshiva, study yeshiva, which was the first in the southwest of, of uh, the United States at the time. And I just got so excited about that. So the actual yeshiva itself, which is now 15 years old, started off in congregation Ohev Shalom, originally with like four to five guys. Now we have about 55. Uh, we have a, a regular, and then we have a base medrash program as well. And that to me has been my biggest joy. And I don't know whether I meant to mention all of this on a podcast. Maybe I didn't know that I was going to speak about psychiatry or my issues. And then I also was about to get divorced. So talking about divorce is probably a very good thing to talk about, not, but what I mean by that, my wife could not understand why I was always at the shul and at the, at the uh, yeshiva, always. So she said, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave you. So the one rabbi is very funny. I don't know if you ever met Rabbi Ringelheim. It's like, so what's the grounds for divorce? He is too much involved with the yeshiva and everything. Yes, that's exactly right. We never ever got divorced, but it was always, it's always been a contentious point. Like even my daughters have always said to me, Dad, you were always more with the yeshiva boys than you were with us. But um, I think we all benefited tremendously from having the shul and having the, uh, the yeshiva very close by. Could I ask, um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that because one of the things that becomes so difficult um, for so many people is that sense of pull, which is you're working very hard and at the same time also, you know, showing up in shul and then really getting something out of it and creating relationships with the, the guys in the yeshiva, the guys in the kolel. How did you, how did you manage it? It doesn't, it sounds like it wasn't with it without a certain toll on, on your family. So what is some, what are some pieces of advice that you could offer potentially about how a person could approach that balance? I probably wouldn't change it. I'd probably do more than what I did. <laughs> no, by that, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is no matter how much, let's say, my daughters complained and everything else, like that, they were complaining through a window of seeing what was important and what really is important. Because really, when you think about it today, even though I've got older, I realize that I should be more involved studying and being involved with the shul and all that. I don't think you can be too much involved because uh, there is a time in your life where you'll become less involved for whatever reason. You might, like I was in, I had cancer for 10 years, so for quite a while, although while I had the cancer for the 10 years, I think I became stronger from a Jewish point of view. Um, I used uh, the shul and the yeshiva as a major springboard. By the way, I love my cancer experiences. I know it sounds strange. It's probably going to be one of your odd podcasts. I really did. Um, when I got cancer the first time, it was an extreme shock. I never expected it at all. And then uh, got it the second time. The doctor said, I said, how difficult is it the second time? He says, no, it's going to be very, very difficult. It's not going to be easy walk in the park. And then when I got it for the third time, he says, well, if you thought that was bad, this is like a lot, lot more, worse. And uh, I must say, I, I had a great time. Why? Because in my room at the hospital, I literally had a base medrash table with two boys uh, studying the whole time. Or I had guests coming the whole time, and then I would have competitions who would give me the best present or not, and then I would post it, you know, 
this person gave me the best present today. I'm really looking for oranges. Anyone want to give me oranges or whatever? And literally made it into a game. Because most people, when you have cancer, people don't know how to relate to you. Uh, Hi, how are you? Or, you know, feeling so well? No, I'm feeling fantastic. It's a little journey, you know, that I'm going on. But I really made it into a game. And by making it into a game, the people themselves enjoyed it. And uh, I just found that during that time, I, I recognized obviously that Hashem had given me these tests for a reason. And the one, just very briefly, I don't want to just shift me back on course if you want me to go in any direction. First time I had the cancer, I was like in 2006, I had pain in my back and I couldn't figure it out. I went to a wonderful uh, chiropractor. He said, don't worry, within 12 weeks, sessions, you'll be fine. Pain never went away, nothing. Went for another one, another one, and then eventually they took an MRI and they found out that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, that was tremendous pain and then a, a great shock to know that I had cancer. I remember it's the first time I ever felt pain, just getting the news that I had cancer. Everybody else could have cancer, but me, no. It wasn't, I was physically fit, I, was, I wasn't, interested in being sick at the time, but Hashem knew better. So I had chemo and then after, and I was clear for five years. And then when I got my clearance, I was very excited. I could go and get life insurance again or whatever. And then like two days after he gave me that uh, past test that I'm clear, I got another lump on my neck and guess what? I had lymphoma again. And uh, that, that was chemo high dose chemo, and then I had to use my own stem cells. So that, that kill off all your uh, stem cells, your, your uh, body, and then you, you take out the new ones that you've just produced, and then we put them into yourself. That's called autologous, when you put your own cells back into yourself. So they kill off everything in your system, put that back in, and see what happens. As it happened, maybe one little cell or whatever, got uh, infected or whatever, and the next thing I had back in two and a half years. Mathematically, they can't explain it, but it's meant to come back in half the time. So when it was five, came back in two and a half years. And then I've got it again, like in one and a quarter years later. So the third time, the doctor was very concerned. Each time it was a death sentence. He said, look, Ivan, I don't know if you're going to make it. There's only one chance that you can have, and that is to do again. Uh, the second time was the worst that I ever had, going through the high-dose uh, high chemo. And then uh, he said, no, this is, if you thought the other one was hard, this is going to be much harder. Because if you taking your own cells from yourself, there's no rejection. You're not going to reject your own body. So it's uh, an easy thing to be able to take your cells into your own body. Now I had to go into an allergenic, not autologous, but an allergenic transplant, where I had to find somebody else to, uh, find, to get cells. It's another reason why you know you should uh, stay. You should only marry Jewish people. Jews should only marry Jews, not only because it's, a, it's the right thing to do or a good thing to do, but when you're going for stem cells, you want to, you, you're going to have, find someone that's going to match you better. Uh, well, you might get it another way, but you're going to get a much better match if you find someone. And in fact, it wasn't Shweki's concert part of the yeah. story. The Shweki, yes. the famous singer, heard Ivan's story and he did a concert for you. Can you just touch on that for a second? Yeah. So, yeah, so what happened is I, on the third go round, I'll come to that, uh, the doctor says, yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult, you know. Um, and I really don't want to promise you anything, you know, life or anything else like that, but it's going to be very difficult. I say, okay, let's go for it, doctor. So we look all over the world and 
it's interesting, you learn about so many things. If a person's over the age of 40, they don't qualify to give you a stem cells. They need to be younger. Secondly, anyone that's been in the army or whatever, even if they were on the donor registry list, they're not allowed to give. And so they couldn't find anyone for me for a while. And then uh, my daughter was in, again, the Jewish connection, was in New York and she meets this rabbi and the rabbi says, yeah, no, there's an organization called Gift of Life. And I've got a friend of mine who, who knows them. And sure enough, Gift of Life, a wonderful man by the name of, he'll come back to me in a second. Uh, he calls me and he says, Ivan, don't worry, we'll find you this person. It'll be no charge, nothing at all. The Jewish aspect, being Jewish, I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, there's another. Um, so anyway, sure enough, three days later, he comes up with three people. So we had to choose. So that we chose, uh, well, the doctor really chose a, a girl, single, hadn't had any uh, pregnancies or anything else like that, and um, 26 from New York City. Fine, I don't mind. And the next thing is, um, my sister actually was a, was a perfect match. From South Africa, we flew her. And just a few days while we were having the Shweki concert, so while I was going through this thing, uh, a couple of young rabbis from an organization called JET decided they were going to get Yakush Shweki to come through to Dallas to have a, a party, you know, basically to celebrate or whatever. It's actually on my website. It's just, it was the most fantastic party. If I asked Rabbi Roden, what was the most magical night you've ever had in your life? He says that. And as I said, it's on the front page of my website. You'll just see, it was just remarkable. We had, it was put together like in, in a matter of 24 hours or 36 hours. And we had like over 250 people in the backyard. Uh, a lot more people would have come, but no one, we didn't really advertise it. But it was just the most wonderful connection of Jews of all backgrounds. Now we're talking about having been in the Kirov world, which I have, where I've always tried to get people involved in coming to study Torah and all that kind of stuff. After a while, you get pretty unpopular, you know, uh, <laughs> asking people to come and study. And then if they don't want to sort of thing, they fall off the tree. And you, you have uh, uh, like, you take the lowest hanging fruit wherever you can find it. And then later on, it becomes a little bit more difficult. But at this night, everyone came. I mean, it was just a remarkable, remarkable evening of uh, celebration and unity. Um, it was a very, very special night with Yaakov Shweki being there. It was just a wonderful evening. I thank him and, and the rabbis. It was just an amazing evening. I want to ask so you. Anyway, my sister falls through the cracks. So my sister fell through the cracks and she was there. She was very disappointed that she couldn't be that donor. But they... And I literally had a few days left to find, you know, and the insurance company said you can only look at three people a day, which is very difficult if you've got a data bank or so far. But this guy, Jay uh, Feinberg from Gift of Life, a wonderful human being, he found uh, this person. So as Yad Hashem, the hand of Hashem, you can just see how he comes into action. So this girl is 26 from New York City, and she knows only that I'm 57 and I'm from uh, Dallas, uh, Texas. That's it. We're not allowed to know anyone. Now, the doctor knows that I'm mischievous in a way that I always like to find out things. So he warns me, my Indian doctor, I even know you can't, you cannot, you cannot go and find, no, it's illegal and it's a federal offense if you find out who your donor is. You're not allowed to do it for reasons of extortion and everything else like that. If you need more, they could say, okay, well, but anyway, uh, I wasn't, I, all I know is that 
in my blog, I had a blog that I used to write, and I put in there, you know, so I called up the, the, uh, the actual center, and I said, how good a match is this? They said, no, very good. I said, no, on a scale from one to 10, no, sorry, sir, we can't tell you. For whatever, they don't want to tell me anything about it. Okay, fine, I, what is it like? Is it like winning the jackpot? Yeah, it's like winning the jackpot. So I changed the name because I wanted to give her a name. I don't say donut, donut. I mean, who cares about a donut? So I called her Jackie for, for jackpot. <laughs> so I called her Jackie, Jackie, and then my daughter flew in from to be with me for uh, when the stem cell. Very, by the way, very, very uh, anticlimactic experience. It's just a bag of blood that's hanging over and a small little bag. And they put it into you and that changes your whole life. You have a new birth date and everything else like that. You, you literally have got a new life. And um, I get a, friend, a call from a friend or text from a friend. I think I know who this girl is. I said, oh, that's wonderful. So who could it be? She says, no, I think it could be this girl, not Jackie, it's Greer. I said, okay. So what's her last name? Brody, okay, fine. So uh, I said, Liat, look up her name on Facebook. See if you can see it, Greer Brody. Sure enough, she's originally from Dallas, Texas. Less than one and a half miles from our house. Wow. She, she's been living in New York. The doctor from Cornell said that the, the, um, the similarity between the blood type and mine, you know, the actual uh, components that were there, was like as close as anything. Your grandparents must have been related. That's how good the match was. So I guess that's fine. I put it in and I said, Leah, do me a favor. You've got to call this girl. Dad, are you crazy? You can't call this girl. You're going to go to jail. It's a federal offense. I said, let me tell you something. I live YOLO. You know, you only live once. If I'm going to say thank you to her, I might die. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I want to say thank you to her. I'm not waiting two years to go and tell the girl. I, if I know the girl, I'm calling her. So I got her on the phone. And I, I failed to tell you that there were two things that I could know if she was the person or not. Jay Feinberg had emailed me the day before at 10 a.m. in the morning. So it would have been 11 a.m. in New York time. She'd say, Ivan, I'm just watching the girl give her blood. Please, God, you'll have it tomorrow. That's one. Second thing is, is that she was rejected as being a possible candidate for me because she had gone to Mexico and had not taken malaria tablets. So I said to the doctor, that's my kind of girl. There's no ways I got in Mexico and I take malaria tablets. So I signed a waiver and that, that she was able to give. So I knew two things about her. I knew the time she gave the blood. And secondly, I knew that she'd gone to Mexico and didn't take malaria tablets. So when I went on the phone, I said, hey, Greer, how are you? I said, you gave blood? Yeah. Tell me something. Did you go to Mexico uh, and didn't take malaria tablets? That's not very nice. She said, no, I didn't. I said, good. Okay. So you are my lady, I think. And what time did you give your blood? And sure enough, it was the time. So I knew who she was. And um, it was just a few days before Thanksgiving. And she came back to see her dad in Dallas. And so I met her a few days after I had the stem cell. So it really was an amazing experience. And thank God, it's, uh, I had a chance. They just said, within two years, you'll know whether you're going to live or not. And thankfully, it was in 2014. Now we are 2020. So it's been a good, uh, thank God, a good six years. So because we, we only have about 10 minutes left. Yeah, yeah please, I, yeah. Take, me, take me away. No, Ask this is where I want to get focused now. So you're a guy, you built shuls, you built schools. 
when you see a cause that's meaningful for you, you use your platform to make sure that that cause is successful. You bring it resources, you bring it wisdom. Give, 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 give. And yet you're the one who speaks the most often about thank you, thank you, thank you. So here's a question for you. I hope it's okay, but not only has Ivan suffered from illness in his family, but he's got children or a child that has suffered tremendously as well. So you're carrying, being an entrepreneur, and we all know there's ups and downs and burdens that come with that. <laughs> That's for sure. You got sickness, you got child sickness, you got all kinds of volatility. Why don't you ever wake up in the morning one day and say, you know what? I've given, 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 given. And it's absolutely fine for me to sit back and receive, receive, receive. What was it that didn't allow you to say, I'm, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I've done more than my bit, so now I'm going to step back and let others do for me. What is, it, what is that? First of all, I don't think I've done anything, really. Uh, relatively speaking, I'm just talking for myself. Personally, I don't feel like I've done that much. And I'm not saying that just to, to say it. So I've got a lot more to do. So I, I don't have that as my thing that I've done so much. I would love to have done much more and still would love to do much more. But I think um, the way I, I view life is everything that you go through is an incredible learning and fantastic experience. So you talk about, I've got a son with special needs. He's now 23, amazing young man, but totally he's at home with us the whole time. Then my daughter, who was the one with me at that time uh, at the hospital, she landed up. I think it was almost like she's close to me. She said, I've got the same things that you've got. And she landed up having um, lupus. Then it uh, became a little bit worse and she got Raynaud's. Uh, lupus is an autoimmune disease. Raynaud's is when you have uh, your swell swelling of the fingers and all that kind of tightens up, your skin tightens up, and you have very little fluid going through to your uh, blood vessels. And then the third thing, uh, she had to have her gallbladder taken out. The doctor said she needed to have her gallbladder taken out. Now, when you've got lupus and when you have Raynaud's, you have to have warm fluids. You have to be in a warm environment. Now, a surgery room is not warm at all. They failed to give her uh, warm fluids and they failed to give her a uh, bear hug thing in the, in the hospital. So she comes out of that surgery, which is normally generally not much to get, with her hands itchy like crazy. Uh, you cannot believe how itchy it was. She couldn't, it couldn't get any peace. Next thing is, within a matter of days, her fingers became uh, gangrene. She got gangrene on her fingers. The pain that she went through and why I was with her was much greater than I ever had in the 10 years that I had with my cancer. Not even, I had no, no, no pain relative to what she went through. That was extremely, extremely difficult. Dad, I want to take my life. I said, I think it's one of the best ideas you told me. It's a good idea to take your life, but let's discuss that tomorrow. Because to argue with a person when they say they want to have something, you don't want to argue. You don't need to argue. You're not going to win the battle. So I said, let's talk tomorrow. And obviously, She's come out to be the most incredible, successful person. I mean, her life has been difficult. She's got a thing called scleroderma. And you don't want to look it up, what scleroderma is. It's a very difficult disease. You never get over it. And you have episodes all along the way. She's an entrepreneur second to none. She's number one in the country for uh, BCBA, which is the uh, people that uh, 
behavior, cognitive, whatever. It's a very difficult test to pass. And she couldn't teach because her, uh, her immune system was so low when she went, she loves being around special needs kids because of my son. Then she decided to, like you said, Mike, to reinvent herself. And she decided, you know what, I'm going to teach people on how to pass the exam. And so she's got a thing called Study Notes ABA. It's a very difficult exam to pass. All the people that take it through her, it's a very fun thing that passes it. And she's got the most incredible business. And she's got a podcast, which I don't want to mention the name. It's called Behavior B. Mm -hmm. uh, B is for, you know, like a, a dog. What do you call it? A male dog. And then you have a bitch dog, which is a female dog. But she's got a podcast that I think she's got like 500,000 followers or something. Wow. And just like, um, it's just like, I can't even begin to tell you how successful she has been. And I'm just very proud of her. But the thing that I like mostly about my kids, of course, I like there's many things, but I'm most proud of, and I think every parent would be, is that they give tzedakah. So both my, my one daughter works for Heads Up Marketing for Weight Watchers in New York, and moving from New York, I think. And then my other one lives here in Dallas doing what she does. But they have got like their MISA, they have their set aside accounts. And then like my daughter from New York would always say, Dad, I've, got, I've accumulated $10,000. Where do you think I should give this money? And for me, if, if you ask me what's one of my greatest accomplishments, or not so much accomplishments as much as like greatest nachas that a parent could have, is that you'd know that your children um, and they're always saying, okay, well, who in the family needs money or whatever the case is. And I, I'm just so proud of that as a, as a function. And I think Rabbi Rodin, Rabbi Rodin, uh, 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 he, I remember when, uh, you know, whenever you get called up to the Bimma for an aliyah sort of thing, and you're involved with the shul, yeah, if a person gives sort of thing, and then some people just say, yeah, uh, what do they say, matana, whatever, no one's specific about anything like that. Some, I'm not saying no one, as some people aren't specific about it. So I said to Rabbi Rodin, Rabbi Rodin, just as a matter of interest, when you give tzedakah, I know you should be humble, you shouldn't give uh, whatever. He says, no, it's a good idea that you should mention the amount of money that you want to give, and you're not doing it for everybody else, you're doing it for your children, you're doing it for your family. And I think they learned from that. You know, so it was a wise piece of advice, which I didn't really get. But he says, when you give, give. And that and it motivates other people to give as well. Um, and I know my wife would say, just keep a lower key, keep a lower key. You, know, you don't want to be higher key. But I, I think that was a big piece of advice. And I think the end result being that I'm so proud that my kids have learned to give as well at an early stage of their lives. I'll tell you a quick story on whether you should give or not, because I always had that dilemma as well. I have a good friend of mine in Toronto from a very, very prominent family, especially in the earlier years, but they went very secular. And one day he was with his father, being shown around Israel, all the hospitals, etc., that they had endowed. And they were driving past Maya Sharim and he noticed the name on a little building in Shiva and it bore the name of his grandfather. He says to his father, whoa, whoa, stop. He's like 21 years old. Stop. What's that about? It's, uh, you know, your grandfather was into that kind of stuff. You know, we don't really believe in that. He says, stop. I want to go in and introduce myself. Met the Rosh Yeshiva. Fast forward, he's now older than me. Helped build, pretty much built Ash Toronto. Supporter of many, many causes. Learns all the time. Only because his grandfather 
put his name on a building. If not, who knows what this friend of mine, Richard, would be today. Yeah. Very it's, a fine, it's a very fine line to know that, like, are you making the Trump Towers because you uh, want your name to you there, or are you doing it because as you're doing it for Hashem? You're doing it for... To inspire for and power. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we only have about a few minutes left, I want to ask you a question. What your journey and the mountains you've had to climb and every little stone and stumble along those mountains. Do you ever get to phases where you look up at Hashem and say, okay, I got it. I thank you for all you've given me, but now it's enough. Can you leave me alone for a while? Or like, why so, did you do this to me? What happens in those moments if you have them? So I, I hate to be like, you know, I've never enjoyed really being around people that are like the Brady Bunch. You know, everything's just so sweet and everything's so great and everything life is not that great not that sweet all the time and particularly as i said in the investment business it's, it can be up and down and everything else you have challenges you're hum you, you know you're humbled in so many ways the one thing that I, I the only thing that i would really drive home the point and i want to come back to answering your question is i've really come to one conclusion one mantra that i keep in my mind every single day i've got it in my talus bag i've got it everywhere ain odd move there is no one but Hashem. Every result that I've achieved, and I've had to learn this the hard way, and I think that's why I've had difficulty, let's say, over the last three years with my, my uh, investment business. I just want to be more transparent. I don't want to pretend that I'm everything else. Very, very difficult time. Disappointment in, let's say, uh, the management team in which I had a great deal of trust in. Secondly, the fact that my results, I did very well for 14 years, and then just suddenly the last three years, terrible. And I realized, you know, the thing that one has to realize when you've got this Ain Odmul Vador, that there's no one but Hashem, you know, no one can help you, no one can hurt you, everything's from Hashem, is that when I have the cancer, I'm meant to have it. I'm not a victim. Similarly, I'm, I pray every single day that I'll be a good shaliach for my clients, but I haven't been a good shaliach for the last three years. What are you talking about? The results that I've got for my clients is exactly what I'm meant to have. The pain that I have to experience, feeling the pain of other people's pain, is very, very difficult. And it's not what I want. I want things to go. Going to your question, I was in Chicago giving one of our talks. We go around giving talks on how to deal with crisis. One woman uh, stands up and she says, don't you think like the fact that God's giving you all this, don't you say, why me? And Rabbi Roden answered the question beautifully. And I think it really says, he says, like, let's say you were to win the lottery. Would you ask the same question? Why me? <laughs> you know? And, and it was just like a subtle thing. And you just realize everything comes there. And when things are difficult, they're meant to be there. And I think I've grown more from that. Except that I think, Mike and Rabbi, if you don't... Uh, talk about these painful situations that you're going through and express like, wow, you know, some people had a value in their portfolio of, of let's say $200,000 and that was the high mark and now it's down to $90,000 or something like that. Like, if you don't talk about it, you've got to express it. You know, there are times there's changes and everything else like that. But I think most people bear it inside themselves. You know, you get very upset about it and you can't grow because you haven't been able to tell your story. 
And I really am very appreciative for you guys to ask me on to your wonderful podcast. I just hope that some of the uh, words that I've given uh, could be helpful to others. And I just wish you great success in uh, educating Jewish people through your podcast. It, it's it's this was completely awe inspiring. It was it was so it was so beautiful to hear not just the the ups and downs and uh, just what you've gone through is is truly unspeakable. And your perspective is so crucial. The idea of being able to take responsibility, the idea for you know being using this as a platform to speak about all of the it's just you know is uh, there could be nothing more comforting and inspiring as we go through the, the times that, we, that we're in right now to hear something like that, because you've stared down so many tremendous challenges. And I would give anything to have this perspective of yours. And I know that it's for all of us to take, but it's like, it's, it's so um, inspiring is such a, a trite word. And I just, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate so much you coming on Obviously, the idea that you made such an imp impression on Mike, and I hope that uh, you get some nachas looking at, 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 the, at the role that he takes and the community positions that he's you know, in now. Um, it's just, it's, it's, been, it's such an honor to be a small part of this, just for this moment of, of, of your journey, and I, I profoundly appreciate it. With pleasure. And there's a gamze. But there's a gamze over there, and you know what it is? Even this will come round. Ivan took me into his store of uh, audio books. And it was a time where I was just completely lost, you know. I'm like, I've, I've reinvented myself a lot of times. It's what I do. I get nothing out of that. I'm like still reinventing myself. So I don't want to act like I'm out of this and I had things figured out. So that's, I just put that out for, for clarity. But here's the crazy thing. Ivan gave me a bunch of audio books by authors. I still remember them today. In those days, Tony Robbins was hardly even known. I want to know when Ivan's going to write his book for general consumption. Because in retrospect, you greater, in my opinion, than any of the men whose books you gave me. That's very nice. You know, it's interesting. I've had people say to me, you're going to write a book, you're going to write a book. And I came to the conclusion I don't want to write a book. And I'll tell you why. There are so many people that have got wonderful stories of books that they've written. And it's just like another book upon another book. But I'll tell you which book I would write, probably, is the pain and suffering that I've endured through the financial uh, management side. Uh, to me, that has been, you know, what happens? I mean, you, you're doing your level, level best to get people things. And... And you've been so successful for 14 years and then you just suddenly down and then you see the true value of people as well because we know there's three ways to judge a person really in a way is through you know uh, rabbi you can give the hebrew on it but yeah it's, I, I i use the acronym mad m-a-d so when a person's money where how they deal with their money and how they are towards their money the second thing is anger uh you can tell a lot about a person and the third thing is when a person's drunk that's how you do it. And money is a very, very interesting thing. I've experienced the most beautiful uh, experiences with people with their money, whether it's up or down or whatever the case is. And then you get the other people that are, you know, but my client base is, is a wonderful client base that I have. 
and the agony and all of that is my agony most of the time. Uh, Maybe we'll co-write that book, Art. Maybe we'll co-write that book. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know why, I feel that even though, I mean, there's a lot of people with journeys of going through cancer and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that people couldn't get it out of it, but this financial thing, you know, where everyone is so wanting to make money and they think it's so simple and they don't realize at the end of the day, I tell people the whole time, it's from Hashem. I've got, you know, uh, it's an amazing thing. I can buy 10 people, the exact same company on the same day. Why wouldn't they come up with 10 people come up with the same results? Every one of them is different. I'll call up and say, you know, it's up so nicely. Shouldn't we sell? And I said, no, we shouldn't. But then I, after I've finished the call, I, he's interrupted with the system. I might sell because of that. Or what, whatever the case. Another guy, I need taxes. I need this or whatever. The results are totally different. And I really do believe that, uh, again, the results that we get, that Rosh Hashanah telling you how much you're going to make or whatever, comes from Hashem. And that's why my, my daven, what I daven to Hashem, is that I should merit Hashem's blessing to continue to be a custodian for Hashem's money and allocate it accordingly. Me, my boys, my wife, those people close to me, I would like to sincerely believe that people will say, it's none of it is ours. We're purely a custodian for Hashem. And if we don't do a good job of that custody, it can go like that. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what the markets do. That's it. Yeah. But, but the custodian, are you talking about the idea of qualifying the person that comes to you for the ask? Or are you talking, I mean, I give to anyone. No, no, purely right? for myself. Purely for like, myself. Right. In terms of the quality of people that come to me and their outcomes, I've given, I've given up trying to understand why bad people have good lives. I've given up on that. And it's just, yeah. I, just I just basically say, firstly, we have no idea what the life really is like. That's firstly. Yeah, you don't. I mean, the fact that the person comes and knocks. We don't know what your mind looks for any of that either. So I've given up on trying to understand people. I really. I, I like that quote that every single person you come across, and I say every single person you come across, is dealing with a difficulty or with an issue that you know nothing about. And uh, and I really do think that's true. So when that person does come to your door, but I do have an inquisitive mind to find out why the person's collected. Uh, to see how they are connected to the story itself. And a recent guy came to me not so long ago, and I said to him, well, what are you collecting for? He said, no, for Panasa. I said, okay, good. So I, he said, no, I'm going to have surgery. I said, okay, well, how much does the surgery cost? You know, because you've got to have a goal. If you don't have a goal, you're not going to get the money that you need. He said, no, um, I, I'm going to use insurance. I said, but how do you have insurance? He said, no, I've got insurance, so I can get it. So I said, well, why are you collecting money then for the surgery? And I thought maybe the deductible or something. No, uh, that's what I do. How long have you been doing this for? 11 years. 11 years for the same procedure that you could get because you've got insurance? I said, like, but what are you doing it? Like, basically, so I said, why don't you go and get a job? Why don't you go and fundraise for Yeshiva? Why don't you go fundraise for something else? He said, why are you judging me? I said, no, it's not a matter of judging. But if you're holding on to a situation where you know you can get a remedy for your surgery, why are you going out and asking people for money? doesn't match up. Rather come and say to me, you know what, I just feel like making additional money to what I've got, and I, I just enjoy asking for money. He says, uh, 
So, but so what I'm saying is just from a curiosity point of view, I like to ask people why they, you know, what they're asking for and everything else like that. Because there are lots of people that, not a lot, I don't want to say that, it's, it's an unfair statement, but there are some people that come into the community every single year with the same thing and they don't really have the proper credentials for why they're doing it. I will still give them, but it's a matter of like, if there's people really in need, I wanted, like when you said a custodian, well, it's, I but want it's to find still, those right yeah, people out. But I have, it's because you understand the laws of tzedakah. My sir, you have an obligation to know that it's going to the right place. That's it, right? But I have you can't get into trouble. I was thinking about one thing, what you said, that you can't get into trouble for being a custodian of, of Hashem's money, let's say the tzedakah money, if, let's say, you hold by, you know, the 10% or 20%, whatever that person wants to give, you put it into that separate account, you can't really go over, you know, in a way. To, were you worried? When you no, said, no, 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 no. For me, it's, it's more holistic than that. It's that, oh. plus a lot more. So how do you give the tzedakah? How do you conduct yourself? Do you walk around as if you the Chochem and with a little bit of Hashem's partnership, you the allocator? Or do you realize that you're purely a conduit? I'm a Kohen. When I give a bracha, whenever I get the opportunity, there's never a moment that I ever think Mike Aaron's giving the bracha. No. I'm purely a conduit. And I think it's the same with money. It's how you do it. It's how you conduct yourself with it. If for one second you think you're the principal as opposed to the agent, I think that's the problem. Yeah, 100%. But we always have to remind ourselves when you say that. Yeah. yeah. That's I, wonderful. I, okay. I thank you. appreciate the time. Ivan, it was Josh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Okay, sounds good. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. Lovely to see you all. Thank you. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.